I want to welcome you into the Sunday preaching podcast of the Point Church located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Ethan Jago has uh, become a friend of ours around here. Uh, He serves on the staff at uh, Olive Baptist Church uh, in the young adults, uh, college-age ministry, and the Lord's using him in a great way there. And uh, Pastor John had invited him uh, to speak for our D-Now this weekend, and I told Ethan, I said, I want you to speak to our church on Sunday as well. Heard his message in the first service today. So uh, I'm really excited about you receiving this today. Ethan, come on up here if you would. I'll let him introduce uh, his wife. Welcome, Ethan Jago, as he comes to preach. Thank you, Pastor Tim, and thank you, church, for having me. Uh, It is my honor to be here. I grew up in Cantonment, Florida, actually, till the eighth grade. Then my dad was a pastor out there, and then we moved up to Philly. Um, I have a beautiful wife and three lovely kids, uh, 11, 8, and 6. Sometimes I have to think real quick because as they all move up in age, I I get confused and they are quick to correct me. So I'm at the age now, which I don't think I can order from the kids menu for my son because he's going to say, no, I'm no longer 11, dad, I'm 12. So that's a whole other issue. Um, As uh, Pastor Tim said, I serve up at Olive Baptist Church at our young adults ministry. So I primarily minister to 18 to 35-year-olds, everyone from college uh, into the young professional realm, uh, and then those that have already been working for a while also. And I have uh, some of them who have made the the trek all the way from the northeast side of town here uh, to to come fellowship and worship with us today. Um, Today, we are going to be looking at something in which uh, it's kind of, I wish to sound the alarm, if you will, uh, to raise the flag on a a humongous issue that I see plaguing the church, uh, the evangelical world, if you will, that I I want to bring to our attention. And so the focus in the the sermon series title that I have here, not a series, but a title that I have here, uh, is Doctrine and Devotion, How Right Doctrine Leads to Devotion to Christ. Uh, And so we're going to be in three major portions of Scripture today. We're going to be in Jude, we're going to be in 2 Peter, we're going to be in the book of Titus. Um, So get your fingers ready to be flipping around in some pages here. Um, And we're going to be looking at something uh, that I think is a a tremendously important issue that we as a church need to identify and address, uh, and then we're going to move forward from here. So we're going to start in Jude. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, please open it up. If not, it should be on the screen here. Jude, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 4. Jude 3 to 4. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In 2017, Lifeway Research released a shocking study that identifies that over 66% of Americans between the ages of 23 and 30 are leaving or have already left the church by the age of 18. That's 66%. By the time they get to the age of 18, they have already left the church. 
Additionally, a recent Pew Research study shows that church attendance has dropped. This is no denominations. This is just overall, all church attendance has dropped 12%. And as church attendance has dropped, the religious unaffiliated category has risen 17% since 2009, which equates to the largest group, if, if you will, of people of the religiously unaffiliated, where three out of every 10 or 30% now no longer identifies as Christian or with any religion whatsoever. And so what we have seen is an increasing amount of spirituality and a decreasing amount of religiosity towards Christianity specifically. Now, Ligonier Ministries, this is, this is where we're kind of cutting to the core here. Ligonier Ministries published uh, a study called The State of Theology and highlighted 30% of evangelicals, that's us, 30% of evangelicals do not believe that Jesus was God. And this is, more this is just more startling. And 65% believe that Jesus was created by God. Not the second person of the Trinity, not eternally generated, but he was created by God, which is immediately attacking Trinitarian theology. And then those who believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God, are now attacking the deity of Christ. And this is us, the evangelical world, that is attributing to this. Now, I'm going to bring it even closer home. The Southern Baptist Convention lost 435,000 members in 2020 alone. That's across the board. We've lost 2.3 million members since 2006, since its peak. What is going on? What on earth is happening? I, when I read these statistics, it, it drums up these, these fears, and it drums up this idea of like, man, we've never lived in an era and an age like this before. But really, as I was reading the scriptures to prepare for this, I, I see that this is nothing new. This is nothing new, and Christians need to identify this, and we've got to right the ship. So the first thing I want us to do is we need to identify the cultural cancer, because that's exactly what is happening to us. We are being plagued by a cultural cancer that has crept into our churches, that has crept into our minds, and it is eating away from us from the inside out. In Jude verse 3, you see this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So this is the writer Jude writing. He was the brother of Jesus, and this was after all of the apostles had died except for the apostle John. All of the other apostles had already been martyred and killed, and Jude is writing this letter, and he had begun to write this letter to affirm the salvation that all of the churches in the area had had. And he was going to write, and it was distributed to all of the, the churches, and something changed. His original intention about commending them for their salvation immediately changed. And some scholars say that as Jude was penning this letter, someone came in, gave him a report, saying that there is something that is continually plaguing these churches. Maybe a, a, as a whole, the Christian world in the first century was beginning to sway away because if you think about it, where were all the apostles? They had been martyred. The church was in hiding. The church was a scattered church. They no longer had the authoritativeness of the apostles, and they were now having to rely on the disciples that the apostles had been training and raising up themselves. So we see we're now moving into the second generation, and as Jude is writing this, he is saying, I'm writing to you about our common salvation. However, there's something much more important that I need to address with you all. I'm writing to appeal to you to contend for the faith. Jude is encouraging this church to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith, to go to war for the faith, 
to stand on biblical principles for the faith. Well, why? What, what, what happened? Why, why is he saying this? Why didn't he just write a, an attaboy uh, kind of message for the church? Well, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What has happened here, and we see that this is nothing new. What we are dealing with in our modern era is nothing new that has happened to the church over centuries. False teachers have infiltrated the church, and false teaching has influenced our minds and how we understand what Christian living is and how we understand what Christian theology is and who Jesus is, who the Bible is, or what role the scriptures have in our life, and who are we supposed to be, and how are we supposed to be living. Now, this false teaching uh, that was happening is a precursor to Gnosticism. And Gnosticism uh, was a first century going into the second century, and it continues to spring its ugly head uh, from time to time, and even more so in modern eras, that we can attain this high knowledge, that there is a, a higher level of spirituality, that if, if I arrive at this point, I'm somehow in an elevated status on my Christian level, and I look down at my nose on every other people as well. And what happens with Gnosticism is it takes God out of the driver's seat and it puts us into the driver's seat, assuming that we now have it within ourselves to make and make it great for ourselves for salvation. Now, here's what I am saying here. We may not be dealing with exactly the exact same type of false teaching that the churches in the first century were dealing with. However, what we are dealing with is an increasing hostile culture, no different than what was happening in the first century here to Christians, in which we are now currently living in an extremely post-Christian, secularized era. And one way in which we get affected is through passive secularism. Now, what is passive secularism? How does this false teaching come into our minds? Passive secularism is passive ways in which the culture applies pressure and influence to your worldview and understanding of biblical truths. This comes in the form of liberal progressive theology. What do I mean by that? Is that we have muddied down who Jesus is. We have muddied down what God has done for us. We have muddied down what evangelism is. We have muddied down what discipleship is. And we have brought in a substitute replacement as if there was one, which is a cheap knockoff for what it actually is supposed to be. And the culture is secularizing in a passive way that infiltrates our thought process, how we view the world, how we view the situation around us, how we view our Christian walk, how we view the purpose of the church. And this is continually hitting us and it bombards us. We have become more consumed with the therapeutic benefits Christianity has to offer as opposed to denying ourselves, dying to sin, and living and pursuing after a holy life. We are more consumed with feeling good and having a good time because Jesus only wants the best thing possible in the temporal sense, and we take it from the eternality of life for us as Christians, and we move it to the temporary life thinking we need health, wealth, and prosperity, and everything else. This is passive secularization, and it has been getting and eating into our minds. We have been ambiguous, meaning not sure in how we are determining our terms and making distinctions. When we use terms like the gospel presentation, and we use the word gospel as God desiring people to only be kind, loving, and to have self-fulfillment. 
instead of calling sinners to repent from their sin and to turn and believe in Jesus Christ. We have become more spiritual and less dogmatic as the emphasis is external conduct and how we live and act rather than internal renewal and regeneration. This places us at the center of the universe, God in a support role, where now when we read scripture, we read ourselves into every single passage as if the Bible was all about us. And we continually do this and make this mistake. And we misunderstand and we confuse our beliefs with emotions. And we seek and long after emotional experiences for affirmation of salvation and spiritual growth. This is no different than when I grew up going to youth camps and you'd come back and you'd see this incredible revitalization within the youth groups and everything else. And the terms we used back, you know, was on fire for God. And I was like, I want to be that on fire for God. And I'd come back and I'd be on this emotional high. And then the second I'm back in school, it tanks. Because I was chasing after an emotional experience to emotional experience to emotional experience. And I didn't let the word of God actually penetrate my life, my mind. We cannot confuse our emotions with the actuality of what Scripture says. I cannot rely on my emotions for affirmation of my salvation. I need to rely on the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. As a society and a culture, we are continually leaning towards secularization. And as a church, we must ask ourselves, what are we going to do about this? The biggest thing that we must first identify is ways in which the philosophical systems of this world have already infiltrated our mind. Whether you know it or not, myself included, there are these unconscious philosophical things that have infiltrated our minds that have distorted a true biblical view of God and of Christian living. And we must first identify those in ourselves to purge us of this cancer in order for us to be of benefit and use for the church, in order for the church universal to continue to grow and to bring people into the kingdom. And if we don't identify this in ourselves, and so often we're so quick to want to identify problems that we see in other people. Oh yeah, did you see that person? Or did you, you see what they did? You see what they said? And so often we don't actually do a selfward inward reflection of, well, what am I doing with my life? Am I in scriptures? Am I just coming to church for a check in the box? Or am I an active participant in this community? Because in verse four, we see that we have to purge ourselves of this. <clears throat> for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We must run a filter of everything that we are hearing through scripture. We must run a filter for everything that we are reading through scripture. If not, we're going to continue to lead ourselves into the further sensuality that this culture pushes on us. Christianity is no longer going to be seeing Jesus as the Lord of our life, but he is going to become a self-help coach for us. I was at Barnes & Noble just this past weekend, and I, I, I love to go to the philosophy and self-help section because just, I love to see what's the new thing that they're pushing out that's going to help everybody change their life. And there's like five different shelves of all these new books about how to become a better you, 16 ways to, to improve your outlook on life. Five different ways on thinking positively. Six people to cut out of your life because of negativity. 18 ways negativity can change into a positivity. And you read all of this other stuff, and what's so interesting about worldly philosophy is none of them can agree on anything, and they all contradict itself. They all contradict each other. They all contradict sometimes their own philosophical systems, 
because it's built off of a bed of lies and it can never be rooted and grounded in something that is an external truth outside of our system, which is the word of God. The word of God is the inspired infallible word of God that was given to man for transcription that has been passed over 2,000 years of church history that has been preserved into what we have today. And if I don't root my whole philosophical worldview and system in scripture and I root it in myself, I'm going to lead into a continual amount of liberalism of Christianity and I'm going to be walking into sensuality, which is what Jude is talking about, and leading myself and those that I am influencing away from biblical truth, away from proper doctrine, and away from devoting myself to who Jesus is. Now, here's a problem. We must be cautious not to just attack the culture because the culture is hostile. The culture is pushing against Christianity. The culture is trying to tell us what we can and cannot preach from the pulpit. The culture is trying to tell us how many people we can have in the congregation. The culture is trying to tell us all of these other political, philosophical systems, but we need to be cautious because the Bible warns us that there is also false teachers among us. And we need to make sure that we are not accidentally being one of those false teachers. If you will, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. This is our second portion of Scripture to unpack. 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. So we're so quick to look, and yes, the culture is bad. I think we all can agree on that. Yes, we see that the culture is continually leading people away from Christ. We see that the media is controlling the narrative on so many different things. But let us take a pause and to do a self-inward reflection to see that we are not accidentally becoming one of these people, and also that we are not being influenced by one of these false prophets. So 2 Peter 2, chapter 2, reading through 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Listen to this, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves, what? Swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Same word that Jude used, sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What we see being identified here, as is the book of Jude is talking about false teaching that is coming in through passive secularization, what we are seeing here is the false teachers coming in and the way in which they influence the church through active secularization. This is when attacks are not merely covertly attacking Christianity, Christian culture, Christian doctrine, but that Christian doctrine is attacked overtly and directly, asking and demanding from the Christian church for theological capitulation, for us to compromise on what we believe and why we believe it because the culture doesn't like that narrative. The culture doesn't like the way you preach. The culture doesn't like that Jesus is exclusive. When I, when I speak to young adults and I speak to college students and I, and I say, I'm going to say something that's going to offend you. So I'm going to say something in here that's going to offend you. It shouldn't, but for whatever reason, we've been so programmed through passive secularization, this is going to sound offensive. There's no other way to God except his son, Jesus. And you're thinking, yeah, tracking. When you speak in objective truth claims like that, does our society like that? No. When you say that not all religions lead to heaven, that there's only one way, and that is Jesus, and it is by grace through faith, nothing else. You can't earn it. You can't strive and work and work and work and eventually get that check in the box. It is a free gift. But when you say stuff like that in this culture, 
or when you say God designed marriage between a husband and a wife, or when you say God designed life this way, people push back. People say, well, science doesn't affirm that. People push back and say, well, you're just being ignorant. You're just, you're a silly, stupid Christian. Christians, you guys aren't smart. You guys have blind faith. We do not have blind faith. We have a faith, and faith seeks understanding. And we have, it's not that step into the dark and hoping that it's true. We have been called into a relationship with Christ, and as Christ reveals and opens scriptures to our minds, we are affirmed by scriptures. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. The Bible speaks objectively. The Bible has withstood the test of time for over 2,000 years. They are consistently trying to attack Scripture, and guess what? It has withstood the test of time, and it will continue to withstand the test of time. Why? Because this is God's holy word. And active secularization cannot, cannot destroy the word of God, but what it can do is it can destroy the people who are supposed to be turning to the word of God. So I'm moving into our next point, experience the cure. What can we do? How can we move past this? We've got the problem statement. We, we got it. Now what? I don't want to just leave us in the dirt. But one more thing I want to say as we move into this. The act of secularization, and when we're trying to identify to see, one, are we as false teacher, or two, have we been influenced by false teaching? We need to ask ourselves this. Has the culture changed your view on what is acceptable to hear being preached or what you leave out in your own personal conversations regarding sin, regarding hell, regarding judgment, regarding of telling people to die to self, regarding homosexuality, regarding transgenderism, regarding racism, and what is happening that I see consistently happening across the board in which pastors are falling one by one by one is we are downplaying scriptural authority for social acceptance. Scripture has no longer and is no longer the authoritative force in a Christian's life because it's not acceptable by culture to have this kind of dichotomist view, if you will, or an us versus them mentality, when in fact that's not the mentality at all. We have been sent out into the culture to change the culture. We are not supposed to continue living in sin so that grace may increase. No, we are supposed to die to self. We are supposed to be renewed. When we have Christ, we are no longer conformed to the old patterns of our flesh. We are now renewed in who we are in Christ Jesus. And the culture will continually attack directly at Christian doctrines and the tenets of faith, and we as Christians need to root and ground ourselves in God's word so that we do not find ourselves capitulating theologically and doctrinally on what it is at the core of the heart of the matter. And one way we can do this is how it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. We sometimes, myself included, act as spiritual children. We may have been in church for 15 to 20 to 30 years, and we may have been exposed to all these Christian tenets of faith, but we've never actually applied them. We've listened. We're so familiar with the message. We're so familiar with our routine that we've never embraced them and actually devoted our lives to them. It's more of a thing we do, not who we are. And that cannot be how we are in church. Well, how do we prevent from being children? How do we prevent from being tossed to and fro? Because I'm here to tell you, there is all this false teaching that is happening 
all over the place that you are constantly being bombarded with on the radio, on the news, on the TV. Acts 17 and 11, looking at the Bereans. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word. This is them receiving the word that the Apostle Paul was preaching. How did they receive the word? With eagerness. However, here's a qualifier. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. We must weigh, compare, contrast, and view what we are thinking, what we are hearing through a biblical lens. We must have a biblical worldview. If we do not view the world through this biblical lens, we will be led by our emotions and not by Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We have seen this happen in so many different ways. And one way we have seen it over the past few years is through social justice. It is pushing the church's focus onto social issues and not on theological convictions. And we cannot capitulate to what society is demanding from us. A pastor does not need to address every single political thing from the pulpit because that is not the pulpit and that is not what it is for. The pulpit is for delivering the word of God in the most clear and concise manner for the edification of the church and for the building of the body. And so we have to be cautious that we ourselves are not leveraging and expecting expectations from pastors to say, well, why aren't you saying this more? And why haven't you addressed this political thing that's going on? All this stuff is happening. The gospel addresses all things. The gospel is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for what? Training in what? Righteous, not training in culture, training in righteousness. And so we must read, understand, and imply the scriptures for what it says and not what we want it to say. Because as scripture reads us and scripture shows us what is truth, and we are using scripture to train others, we are moving into our final point here as cultivating the soil for the future generations. Turn your Bibles to Titus. Titus chapter 2. We must cultivate the soil for the future generations. My ministry is engaging in Generation Z primarily and some young millennials. If you have no clue what Generation Z is because you've been living under a rock, which most of us have, uh, it's anyone born between 1996 to 2012. The generation after that, yeah, that's all my people right here. The generation after that is like my son's generation, that's Generation Alpha. Right, then those, sadly, I, I hate to identify in this category, I'm a millennial, and then we have the Gen X, and then we, you know, and you just go on and on and on. Now, here's the interesting thing. Generation Z constitutes 40% of the future workforce. So often we talk about the next generation is like they're, they're up and coming. Generation Z is here, by the way. They're here. Most of them have graduated college, they're getting married, they're in the workforce. And what are we as a church doing to engage this generation? What are we as a church doing to engage the generation after that. So often we capitulate even discipleship to thinking, well, I didn't get it when I was going through church, so why should I give it to somebody else? I couldn't possibly know how to disciple anybody because I've never been discipled. God doesn't call us to go therefore and make disciples so long as you have already been trained on how to make disciples and go ahead and do, no, he says go and do this. So let's look at Titus chapter two, verses one through eight. But as for you, that's all of us as Christians, what should we do? Teach what accords, how? How are we supposed to teach? With sound doctrine. Okay, boom. He's already landed the plane right there. 
Here we go. Older men, you are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Imagine, men, if we were that. Just right there in the most simplistic understanding of the word. Hold on, women, you're next. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men, here we go, younger men, you're not left out either, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching and show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Can you imagine if every single one of us actually obeyed that and actually lived that daily, not for a season, not for only on Sundays, but daily? Can, just wrap your mind around that. That is Christian living. But yet, why don't we do it? We, we, we just don't. We, we put off for the next time, or oh, I'm not ready yet, or I got to work on this first next year, next month. Next, when my kids get older, I'm in the wrong season of life right now to be really investing in these kids. You know, when I get older, then I'm going to start helping out. Currently, Gen Z and young millennials get 62% of their information from the social media sites such as YouTube and Instagram. 62% of the information they have gotten and continue to get in their information-seeking behavior is from YouTube and generation, excuse me, and Instagram. Generation Z additionally spends on average nine hours on their phone a day. Think about this. We have seen increasing levels in anxiety and depression. And what I have also seen really rising up to within my own ministry is these heresies from the third and fourth century that was squashed at the Council of Nicaea, that was squashed at the Council of Constantinople, coming back again. And I'm like, where on earth did you hear this? This was crushed back with Tertullian. This was crushed back with Augustine. Thomas Aquinas killed that. Oh, I saw it on YouTube. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, did you know that the Bible actually, I'm not joking right now, this is real. This is what, this video went viral and it continues to go viral. Did you know that the Bible actually doesn't condemn homosexuality? Did you know that? The, Bible, the Greek word for homosexuality uh, was invented of the definition of how we now know it uh, in the 18th century. So when the biblical authors wrote that word, they didn't really mean that. What they meant is you, you, you can't have sex with other men in the temples of pedophilia. And that video went viral from this authoritative source who qualifies himself as an expert because he studied Greek for however many years and this and this and this, but he failed to realize that there's two meanings in the Greek text. There's the lexical definition, which is the literal word, and then there's the syntactical definition of the word, which is built into the context of how that sentence is structured. But here's the thing, that influences our young people. They see that, accept it at truth, adopt that as truth, and now see homosexuality is okay. We as Christians need to be nice and kind to them. Yes, we are supposed to be nice and kind to them, but we cannot continue to allow them to live in sin. We have to call them out of that. And the culture doesn't want us to do that. We are seeing this generation bombarded daily with passive secularization and active secularization. And here are the three main areas I have seen this happen within my own group with questions that I get from my people. They attack the authority of scripture and the reliability of scripture. 
They are attacking the deity of Christ. They are try- that statistic said at the beginning of the sermon shows that's very clear. And then thirdly, the necessity of church. Now, we all think, you know, the churches have, you know, our attendance has dropped. It's COVID, you know. COVID's kind of dropped the attendance, and so people are out. How many of you, we don't have to call anybody out here. My, my job is not here to embarrass people. I know I've heard, oh, I, I can't go to church, COVID. And then I see them at Walt Disney World. I see them at the, the Target right down here, and they're excited about the new Aldi's opening. And like, well, you can't go to church? Well, I just, I, my health is important to me uh, as I'm going into this. Is what I see that COVID had done in pushing people into the homes, it has filtered through those who are in Christ who identify with Christ and those who thought that Christ was like a, a, a means to an end. And so we need to pray for our brothers and sisters. Some have legitimate problems and they can't come back. I'm not negating that. And some really do have health issues and they can't come back. But what I want us to understand is that what we are doing now and how we are modeling to this other generation, are we being hypocritical in what we say and what we do? Or are we being genuine in what it is that we say and what we do? Because when we are called, as Titus 2 tells us to, the Apostle Paul is telling us that we must train the younger generation. We must give them training. He gives us a, a reason and a qualifier on how we are to train them. We must be temperate when we train them. We must be dignified and sensible. Here's the biggest thing that I want to challenge us all with. We must ourselves be sound in faith. I cannot take someone where I have never been myself. So often we assume that we have this spiritual, incredibly deep well, only to find out as we start to engage with this younger generation or engage with other individuals that our spiritual well is truly just a puddle. And we really don't know as much as we ought to know. Because I'm here to tell you, this generation, our Gen Z, our young millennials, they are hungry. They want the depths of God's word. We had a panel here, Pastor John, I, and Nathan, we had a panel here, and some of the questions we received were incredible. It's not like, did Jesus die on the cross for our sins, Uh, and what's three easy ways that I can become a better person? We've got questions on, if I'm sharing the gospel with a Hindu, and they're getting hostile to the Christianity, how in which can I share my faith with someone who is hostile towards Christianity? And other questions such as, I have a friend who is a homosexual. How do I share the gospel message with them? And then other people thinking, this is now coming from my group that I've had. How do I know that the scriptures are reliable? How do I know that a bunch of guys just didn't make it up and they're all cooperating together? And then taking this even deeper, how can I understand Trinitarian theology? How do I know that, what does it mean that Jesus is the begotten son? What does it mean that God is unbegotten? It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is spirated. Can you explain that to me? And then I have other individuals asking other deep-rooted issues, such as why do good things happen to bad people? Or why do bad things happen to good people? I got that reversed. Or how do we know that the Genesis account is supposed to be taken literal and not metaphorical? Science is saying that the earth is millions and millions of years old. How do I know this to be true? And so they are hungering to go deep. They want to go deep. And I am challenging the older generations to engage with the younger generations. We know how we are supposed to be doing this because 
I'm here to tell you, if you're on the older end of the spectrum, you may be thinking, well, they don't want to hear me. And if you're on the younger end of the spectrum, you're thinking, well, I don't know if I want to hear from them. And so we've got these two groups that are alienating themselves, and both groups suffer from pride, or both groups suffer from identity issues because they don't know how they're going to be perceived from the other individuals, and so no one makes that effort to go and connect. What I've seen in my own group is I have seen people come in, new guests come in, 19, 21, 22-year-olds, and my leaders, and I have a varying age of range of leaders. This young generation just wants you to talk to them, to ask them questions, to actually get to know them. You don't want to go up to them and be like, I need to tell you something. I got a word from God for you, young man. Cut that hair. That's what I grew up with. They don't want that. They want to know that you actually care. And we see this being modeled to us in Titus. We must not train and teach from our opinions. We must train and teach them from Scripture. I must know what Scripture is in order to train the generation in Scripture. Because this generation is hungry. And if you sit there and you, they get the milk all over social media. Think of any big, big, big name viral pastor, most likely they're not actually preaching sound doctrine and theology. They're preaching some self-help promotional, moralistic, therapeutic form of deism about Jesus and not actually Jesus himself, right? And so this group, I'm, I'm gonna either embarrass myself real quick or I'm gonna stand affirmed. I introduced your students this week to a Hebrew word. You may be thinking, oh man, so I'm gonna give you guys a second to rack your brains here real quick. I'm gonna buy myself some time. I gave them a Hebrew word, and some people are like, Ethan, they don't need to learn the Hebrew, they don't need to learn the Greek, just give them Jesus. Yes, I agree, absolutely they need Jesus. But instead of us doing what culture is asking us to do, where we're lowering the content of the gospel to meet that of the culture, I wanna raise the culture to meet the content of the gospel. I've gotta set a high standard and a bar and show these students and to show these young people and everyone within the church this is where we need to be, but this is where we're at. How are we going to fix that? So, young people, what was that Hebrew word I taught you on Friday night? Dirach. Look at that, dirach. And what does dirach mean? Here we go. <laughs> what does it mean? A path, stringing a bow. And the application of us using that word is Christian living is a path. It's a path that we must be walking on, and it takes work. And it's not something that you can just hit cruise control because you've hit the spiritual plateau and everything's gravy and life's gonna go good. No, you've got to consistently work at your salvation. Just because you're saved, it's not a get out of jail free card, right? And, and you just put that in their back pocket and be like, I'm gonna go, man, I've got salvation, that's all I need. It's a life that is living on a path. There's a great pastor, if you've never listened to him, I highly suggest Stephen Lawson. Uh, and, and he was speaking at a seminary, and they had done a survey at one of these major Southern Baptist seminaries, and they surveyed their MDiv students. The MDiv is the Masters of Divinity program that most pastors go through. And in the MDiv program, typically it's anywhere from 72 to 106 credit hours of a, a graduate level degree. And in that, they're learning systematic theology, they're learning all of this other stuff, and they pulled them and asked them, what's one thing that you don't think seminary really taught you very well? This is seminary students, Christian living. We don't know how we should be having and how we should be living a Christ-centered life. Holy cow. What does that mean 
for those young men who are graduating seminary, most likely going to these churches to go and pastor. If you actually look up, you can look up the statistic. There's over 1,500 pastors a day leaving the ministry. And you know what the number one reason is why they've left? Well, there's two. One, the church has actually made them leave because the church got so hostile towards the pastor because they got a young guy preaching to them and they don't want to hear him because he's young. I believe Paul talked about not despising you because of your youth, right? I don't know. I'm kind of going crazy here. And then the other one is from burnout. The other reason why pastors are leaving because of burnout. Why are they leaving because of burnout? Because people, the church, are not serving the way in which the church was designed to serve. We are so caught up with being consumers and we are so caught up with the culture telling us that this is how we're supposed to live and then this is what we're supposed to do. When we are hemorrhaging families out of our children's ministry and out of our student ministry because no one wants to step up, own it, and go volunteer and serve in the children's ministry. I've been at several different churches over the last 15 years, and the biggest issue I have heard consistently across the board, I have yet to go to a church and where they're like, yeah, our children's ministry, we don't need any volunteers. We are solid. I've never heard that. Why do do, do we feel inadequate to go and teach a first through third grader? Uh, Because, you know, I... I'm not getting the prominence I, I wish to have. That's why I wish to go and speak at this larger venue if you're even wanting to serve or whatever. There's so many different ways we can serve. And one way we serve and help our pastors with burnout. Now, I want to caveat this real quick. Pastor Tim did not ask me to say any of this. He has no, I didn't say this in the first service nearly to the extent I'm saying now. So I want to quickly caveat to protect him. That is not at all why I'm saying. I'm just saying this because I see in this Titus 2 model of the older training the younger, that we are called to not just train, but to teach but and also to serve the church, not for ourselves, but for the benefit of the body of believers. We must have countercultural living, and this is how we do it. We are brothers and sisters. Do we just use that as a term, or do we actually view each other as brothers and sisters? Are we actually a family, or do we just give lip service to that, and then when we leave here, we're, we man, we're neighbors, and I don't like how you mowed your yard, and I'm going to complain about you, and I'm going to show a bad testimony. We have to stop having a me-centered worldview and start having a God-centered worldview. We cannot allow the world to dictate how we perceive ourselves and our surroundings or our purpose. We must allow Scripture to dictate our worldview. This is a biblical worldview for Christian living. We must view the world through the biblical lens and filter out that, that is from the culture, and grab hold of that which is from God, that which is from Scripture. The time and energy that we expel now in this younger generation, we are going to reap the benefits in three to five years. And that is very difficult for us to serve with this long-term investment mentality because so often we are such consumerism society where we are the now generation in which we want things now that we're investing in these third graders And our mind is thinking, well, I haven't seen much from third to fourth grade with them. But if I am faithful in serving them, I am setting the church up for success in a fully devoted follower of Christ by the time that they're in high school. And then by the time they're through our high school program and they're serving in the college and after college and God calls them to be married and now they're leading the church, I've got a future deacon. Do you view the young men and women in that regard? Or are they more of a pain in the side? 
more of a, well, I guess I got to do it. And begrudgingly, I say, yeah, put me on the list. You know, I guess I'll do it. We cannot, we must redefine what service looks like. We must redefine what culture and community looks like within the church. And that must be a biblical definition. Instead of allowing culture to define who we are, instead of allowing culture to define what the scriptures say, we must let scripture speak for itself. And we must let scriptures penetrate our hearts, our minds, and our souls. And so this is my call to arms for all of us, is that we must cultivate the soil for the future generations. Because as Generation Z is moving up, what do you think is going to happen with Generation Alpha? Generation Z is the first generation that has always had a supercomputer and access to internet at all points in time. The technology is only going to advance. The culture is only going to get more wicked. How are we putting up filters to protect the young? Men, you need to start stepping up and being biblical leaders for your families. You need to step up and to train the younger men. I have seen, I coach at a at Perdido Bay football club over here, and the sad statistic is, because I noticed, I see more and more grandparents shopping off their kids at soccer, and I did a research study. There's 2.3 million families right now in which the grandparents are the primary caregivers of the kids. Where's the mom and dad? And then there's a huge flux of mothers bringing their kids to church, and the fathers are staying home. And what's sad is there's so many different statistics, I won't bore you with this, but the men are apathetic and lazy spiritually, and the women right now are stepping up. The women are crushing it. The women are leading the families by themselves because they've got spiritual duds of a husband that are sitting home and would rather watch the football game or go play golf than to get serious about their family and being good stewards of what God has given them. We have to step up, men. I need to be rooted in God's word. I need to train my family. I need to lead my wife. I need to lead my spouse. Within my group alone, we have about 120 students. 70% of them are women. The other 30% are female. Within that, I have about 60. What did I say? (laughs) 70% are women, 30% are male. There we go. My mind was already going to the next point. 70% are women, 30% are male. I woke you up. Welcome back. (laughs) Out of that, I've got about 16 discipleship groups. 13 of them are led by women, women for women, and only three are led by men. I see that on my level. The men are not stepping up. The women are taking the reins and they're moving forward as the men are just dying on the sidelines saying, well, you got it, honey. Now, men, we've got to step up. We've got to be good stewards with what God has given to us. Now, women, you need to be investing in these young women. The culture is not pushing women towards purity. The culture is pushing women towards promiscuity. The amount of women that have come and talked to my wife and I, just within my own little group, about relationships that they've been in in which they are sexually active, and now they don't know how to get out of them. So often we as the older generation think that we can't be too transparent with the younger generation because it's going to embarrass us if I tell them, you know, this is, I screwed up when I was a kid or I screwed up when I was in high school or I screwed up when I was in college. Please learn from my mistakes. I don't want you to learn from that because we don't want them to view us differently. I'm here to tell you, if you level the playing field with them and you want to actually help them, you need to be honest with them and train these younger women up. Train them and not think that you're on some other higher spiritual level like Gnosticism does, but that We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, you may be 45 years younger than me, but guess what? I've been where you've been. Different culture, but history remains the same. 
Different problems, just different masks. And so we need to, as women, women, you need to be training these younger women. How is it that I can be a God-centered woman in my living? How is it that I can train these younger women up into the faith? But men and women, you must be rooted in God's word in order for you to properly train them. Because I'll be honest, I don't really care to hear opinions from you unless you can back it with scripture. And so everything that we do, we must flow from scripture or point them back to scripture. Because if we don't do that, then I'm merely speaking out of what I believe to be true and not really what is truth, and that is scripture. So we've got to cultivate the soil for future generations. We need to also understand the cure, and that is the scriptures. And then lastly, identifying the cultural cancer, which is what we started with. So this is my call to arms. What are we going to do from here on out? We cannot, after hearing this, we cannot continue on living as if this is not happening. And I know we all know that this is happening, but typically we look through it and it's like some, someone needs to do something about this. How about you step up and you go and do something about this? Imagine if all of us stepped up to go and do something instead of it being just one person. You know, so often we're, we're looking for the next Billy Graham. What if we had 300 Billy Grahams? Why do we need one person to rally behind when we can all rally behind the inspiration and source of truth, which is scripture? We don't need another Billy Graham. We need Christians called back into orthodox practice and understanding of scripture for scripture to actually take a primary role in our life. If we're constantly looking back into trying to regenerate and pump lifeblood into something that may have worked back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we're so constantly looking back that we're not actually figuring out where this future generation is going. And so we have to get back to sound teaching, and we ourselves must be rooted in God's word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this, this time we have. Thank you for your, your spirit, God. Thank you for your word and help ministers to us, God. I, I pray for everyone in this room, God, that we'll be serious about our walk with you, that we will view scripture as the primary source of truth, God, that we will stop living our lives for ourselves, God, that we will train and to teach the younger generation, that we will purge ourselves of these worldly systems that have penetrated our minds, God. You are holy. You are perfect. You are majestic. You are God. And we humble ourselves before you and we ask you to help us, help our unbelief, help us where we struggle, help us where we sin, Father, and let us not continue living as if there's so much more time that we have because God, time is short and we love you and we thank you in your name, amen.